Hello, welcome back to Love and Friendship. Once again, we have another extremely over-ambitious project. Uh, namely, we are going to talk about friendship, love, sex, and the Old Testament. Um, obviously, we can't read the whole Old Testament. It's enormous. I have selected quite a few passages that I think are especially important, um, representative, emblematic, however we want to describe, describe it as well as touching on some of the points of controversy that I'm kind of anticipating in this discussion and that will sort of loom over the course just as a whole. Um, so we have a lot to talk about um, as the thunderstorm that is apparently happening breaks overhead. Um, hooray for what will probably be the last of the August afternoon thunderstorms. Um, there it is. But yeah, we have a lot to talk about here, uh, and we need to kind of approach this in a couple of directions. Again, the reason why I'm starting with the Old Testament, just to probably start there, um, is because it doesn't fit with a lot of the other philosophy that we're going to cover. Um, obviously, it's not part of the sort of Greek tradition that's going to, you know, spring up around Plato and, and develop and grow into the Roman Empire and stuff. Um, but we are absolutely going to be talking a lot about Christianity in this class, and you really can't talk about Christianity responsibly unless you are also talking about its Old Testament roots. Um, so we need to talk about Judaism, we need to talk about the Torah, we need to talk about the idea of what is frequently called the Judeo-Christian God, um, because he is sort of at the center of so many of our ideas about love, whether positive or negative. Um, so we need to do some Old Testament stuff. Um, and this is as close to the beginning as we can probably get in this class. Like, there are other old texts from other traditions that we're dealing with, um, but in all likelihood, Genesis is probably the oldest one we're going to run around with. Um, now, there's some debate about exactly how old Genesis and the Torah slash Pentateuch actually are. Um, we'll probably get into that a little bit as we go. Um, but I do want to stress that this is very much probably the most representative of truly ancient cultures, like more than just classical Greece where, you know, democracy is being built and societies are starting to come together and civilization is at the very least starting to look like what we see today. Um, in ancient Judea, in like the whole ancient Near East, um, with the exception of Egypt, which is pretty advanced as these cultures go at this point, like we still have a lot of nomadic um, nomadic civilizations, a lot of groups that haven't really settled down and like settled an actual city. Um, this is, you know, Egypt is a thing, Babylon is a thing at this point. Um, both of them are sort of centralized civilizations in their own right. Um, but the the Jews at this point in history, the that we're sort of talking about, particularly uh, in the Pentateuch, in the sort of prehistoric question mark Judaism um, and the early monarchy as we're going to see with, with the story of David and Jonathan um, this is early days for civilization and kind of a throwback to an even earlier set of days um, specifically like just to jump into our context here, uh, the Pentateuch or what we know of as the Pentateuch Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy um, the two sort of stories of how these books work are kind of in opposition to each other. There's kind of... Uh, 
need to back up again. I'm going too fast. Um, we need to go fast, and yet I'm going too fast. Um, let's start with the fact that Christianity is kind of a big deal. Like, I know that that's definitely anticipating, but we need to sort of understand our biases in order to get back at the biases that are underlying this text. Um, specifically, when you start doing scholarship about the Old and New Testament, you're likely to get over your head really quickly. Um, like, as a rule, whenever a student comes up to me and says, Professor, I thought that reading was really interesting. Where can I find more information about it? My answer is 99% of the time, go, go onto the internet and find whatever you can and take it all in and take as much as you want in and you will be learned and knowledgeable. Um, I never say that when it comes to the Old and New Testament, because if you Google Old Testament or New Testament or Christianity or Judaism or like any of the things that we are talking about in this text, any of the passages, any of the verses, you will get a wide selection of very skewed results. Um, everybody's got a, a horse in this race is kind of what it comes down to. Nobody is fence sitting when it comes to Christianity. Um, or Judaism, for that matter. Like, it's just three prongs of a multi-headed hydra of conflicting scholarship that is just constantly roiling at all times. Um, the fact of the matter is, there are some hardcore Christians and hardcore Jews absolutely convinced that the, their position is the only truth there is, and they are willing to conjure up as much scholarship as they can to support that position. And on the other side, there's a whole bunch of atheists who are absolutely 100% dead set against whatever that information might have and have their own evidences and their own proofs, like to the point that they're not even talking to each other. Um, like, when I talk about the academic conversation surrounding attacks, like, when we read Plato, there's a whole bunch of Plato scholars out there, all with different opinions about Plato, all with different ideas of what Plato is talking about, what his significance is, what he might be trying to say in various texts, how that, you know, re like, reverberates in the modern age. Like, Plato scholars totally disagree all the time about Plato. Um, but they all talk to each other, and they have conversations in which they disagree. Plato Scholar 1 will say that Plato ultimately, you know, kept hold to his theory of the ideal forms throughout his life and that he's just questioning it and challenging it but ultimately not, like, overturning it. While Plato Scholar 2 is saying, you know, the ideal forms were totally thrown away with Parmenides and he's doing an entirely new project in the Timaeus. And so it goes. Um, but in Christianity, when people are having conversations, they're not having it together. They're all having their conversations in different rooms with different people, and they are admittedly disagreeing a lot of the time, and sometimes those disagreements get so bad that we end up schisming, and we now have two conversations going on in separate rooms at separate times with their own sets of disagreements that might schism and break again. The fact of the matter is, if you start researching the Old Testament and you get on, say, an atheist track, you will get a very different view of the Old Testament and its sources and its attitudes and its writers and what it has to say than you will if you get on, say, a Jewish, like, rabbinical track or on a Christian fundamentalist track or, like, a more liberal-minded, like, 
Catholic liberal theology track. Like, all of these tracks exist in parallel to one another, and they never interact with each other. They never talk to each other, or when they do, it is very rarely, usually pretty heated, or so polite as to never possibly go wrong. Um, it's a mess, is what I want to emphasize here. And the fact that it is a mess, the fact that there are so many diverse perspectives, isn't necessarily a selling point, depending on who you're asking. Like, typically, we Americans like our diversity. Let's get as many voices together and have them all talk to us, and then we can sort of piece out the truth from listening to all these diverse perspectives and synthesizing them into one. Like, that's what we're doing in this class. That's what academia does a lot of the time. But, I should stress this, very much the attitudes on both the atheist and Christian side, on the Jewish side in many of these cases, is that these people have the one and only holy truth. Like, holy as in sacred. Um, and that goes for the atheists as well. Their truth might not be sacred in the sense that it is for the Christians, but they are convinced that the Christians are not only wrong, but so wrong that they are perverting and corrupting everyone that they come into contact with, and they should therefore be rooted out and snuffed out, if at all possible. The disagreement is that aggressive and that violent a lot of the time. So, one, if you in fact do want to study more of this stuff, talk to me about it. Uh, like, send me an email, ask me questions, ask me for good sources, I will provide what I can. Um, two, if you are sitting there listening to me and saying, well, then what about you, Professor Kozlowski? Which particular track are you on? Um, this is where get things get a little weird. Uh, so, I am in fact a Christian. I call myself a Christian. I attend church regularly. I believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ. Like, all of that is true about me. Um, in my capacity as, you know, a human being who believes things and has opinions. Um, in my capacity as a professor, I like to think that I can at least to some degree sideline that. Not totally sideline it. Like, trust me, I am absolutely very eager to convert as many of you to Christianity as humanly possible. But I don't think that I can do that by browbeating you and just preaching the gospel as I know it and understand it. I think the best way for me to convince you that Christianity is a viable solution to your life's problems is to present it as rationally and logically as possible. We'll give you all sides of the discussion as far as I can see them and to let you decide for yourself because I personally believe that the truth will out. Um, that if, in fact, God is a thing that exists, is a person out there, and Christianity is the truth that underlies the entire world, then I have no fear of the truth. Um, and in fact, the most I can do is tell you all of the information that I can give you, give you the most complete picture of reality and the truth that I have, both insofar as people who agree with me say things, and insofar as people who disagree with me say things. And at the end of the day, I trust that your sense of rationality and your connection to the living God will ultimately lead you where I want you to be, and where God wants you to be. In practice, that's definitely not how it happens, but of course it's always more complicated than this. Um, but, all that to say, that doesn't answer the question, what track am I on? Yes, I am a Christian, but I am a Christian who has studied the Bible in a lot of different weird contexts. Um, the first time that I read the Bible fairly seriously, I was in college doing my undergrad uh, studies, and I was studying it at a liberal arts institution that really had 
virtually no religious affiliation whatsoever. Um, I learned it from a professor who was in fact a professed Christian and said that, but it was in the context of teaching the Bible to English majors for the purposes of teaching them how to recognize biblical allusions and to recognize what significance they have when they are actually writing their English papers. So it wasn't a Christian course. It wasn't even a Christianity course. It was a course about reading the Bible and how the Bible fits into the greater scheme of popular culture, literature, the canon, etc. Um, so it was kind of an atheist's take on the Bible, or at the very least a knowledgeable, intelligent scholars take on the Bible. Um, I graduated from my undergrad institution, spent some years bumming around doing substitute teaching, ended up at Boston College doing my master's. And for those of you who don't know, Boston College is a Catholic school. They are a Jesuit Catholic school. I am not Catholic myself, so this was kind of weird and new to me. But while I was there, I definitely found my Protestant upbringing sort of bumping against the Catholic ideas. So I read the Catholic Catechism cover to cover, and I spent a lot of time poking you know, talking to Catholic scholars and seeing what they had to say about the subject and sort of bouncing my Protestant ideas off of them. Um, and in the process, I think I got a really good idea both of my faith as distinct from Catholicism and of Catholicism itself as distinct from Protestantism. Then I made what might have been the weirdest move. I went to seminary um, at a hardcore Baptist, very conservative seminary. Um, at that point, I had basically said, well, I've been learning from the Catholics all this time. Maybe I should actually, you know, hang out with some Protestants and see what they have to say about the situation. And this seminary was probably as close as one can get to... I don't even know how to put this. It is dangerously close to the cultish side of Christianity, I want to say. Like, they were very dogmatic in their approach. Um, but they were also rigorous in their scholarship. Um, they did not flinch when it comes to studying the Bible carefully and in a way that is rigorous and sophisticated. They did not brook bad scholarship, which I respected and appreciated then and now. Um, but their conclusions were almost always unilaterally in the same territory, namely in agreement with these uh, very conservative uh, Baptist ideas. Um, so I very much chafed when I was at seminary, uh, because I was significantly more open-minded, I think, than a lot of those scholars would admit to being. Um, and in fact, open-mindedness, for a lot of them, I suspect, would be considered a negative value rather than a positive one. Um, so all that to say, I look at the Bible knowing a lot of different approaches. Um, I've studied ancient Hebrew and I've studied ancient Greek. I've read, you know, the, like, passages from the, the a traditionally Catholic Bible, as well as my own beloved King James Version, as well as a whole bunch of more contemporary and sort of Baptist-minded translations. Um, I've studied this Bible from a lot of different perspectives, from a lot of different angles. Um, and I think, I hope, that that positions me fairly uniquely at the center of a lot of the discussion. Um, from my privileged position, I can see over a lot of Christian discourse. I can jump tracks, um, to use the metaphor that I was talking about earlier. 
I've read the Bible from an atheist's perspective and read lots of atheist scholarship on the subject. I've read the Bible from a Catholic's perspective and read lots of Catholic scholarship on the subject. And I've read the Bible from the Protestant's perspective and I've read a lot of Protestant scholarship on the subject. Um, I admittedly have not spent a whole lot of time in Jewish circles or Muslim circles. I hope to sort of bring bring about more knowledge as I study these classes and work through my PhD or whatever turns out to be in the future for me. That would be great. I would love to get more knowledge. Um, I am trying to... I, I recognize that that's a failing of mine and I am trying to fix that, is I guess what I'm trying to say. But largely because I recognize that there are tracks that I have not explored, um, which is the first step to, I think, true knowledge, that humility, that recognition of one's own ignorance. I know enough about this whole massive business to recognize how small my perspective is compared to the whole, and yet how much larger it is than many of the people who I have interacted with, if that makes sense. Um, this is not to toot my own horn. Um, I'm saying this because I want you to understand my biases, and hopefully where, like, recognize that I am at least doing my level best to correct them. Um, insofar as possible. I am not a dogmatic Christian in any extent of the imagination. I am, for better or worse, whether that hurts my faith or helps it, a fairly open-minded one. Um, and I have had my fair share of disagreements with other Christians on exactly what that means and what that looks like and whether I should be doing this or whether I shouldn't. Um, I have been rejected from jobs and teaching positions on the grounds that my theology was not in line with what the institution I was applying to had in mind. I know what that's like. Um, it frustrates me, but I also respect that decision. It is not a sign of closed-mindedness as a bad thing. It is a sign of protecting one's community, which I understand the reasoning behind that. Let's put it that way. Um, so all that to say that we're going to look at this from a scholar's perspective, as objective as possible, with the dual ideas of getting at, like, what is going on in this historical moment? Why are we viewing love the way that we do here in this Old Testament? As well as recognizing that this is going to have major, major implications down the road. Lots and lots of scholarship, lots and lots of philosophy is going to be pointing back to the same stories of Adam and Eve, um, David and Jonathan, um, like Lot and Sodom, um, the Ten Commandments. Like these are fixtures in the history of Western philosophy. They are like boundary markers. They are assumptions in many cases. Um, and even contemporary philosophers who are very much rejecting God and all of the Christian scholarship that has gone before, very much, I suspect, are dependent on these texts, if only because one can get more followers by screaming at an opponent than one can by just building a system, as Nietzsche would probably point out. Um, so, there's a lot going on here. Um, the first thing that I want to talk about is the time of this particular book, because again, we are trying to study this stuff from a historical perspective, and we are already going to run into our first major controversy here. Namely, the dating of the Old Testament is one of the most hotly contested subjects in the whole Christian scholarship world. Um, the Pentateuch especially is one that has been essentially dissected and rebuilt a hundred times. Um, so let's talk about the two sort of dominant theories here. Um, 
Christian and traditional scholarship, i.e. Jewish scholarship that like holds to the, the Jewish traditions as authoritative, tends to argue that the Pentateuch, i.e. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, 80% of what we read for today, um, as well as considerably more that we did not read, and just, you know, one of the most important texts in the history of Western culture, period, the end, um, traditional scholarship argues that it was written by the prophet Moses. Time-wise, they don't really have a 100% guaranteed answer. There are kind of two major dates that people point to around 1500 BCE, and I think slightly more recent, slightly long, like further back. I don't remember exactly. Uh, they both exist between, if I'm not mistaken, 1000 and 1500 BCE. Uh, that's when the time of the Exodus is usually pinned down. But the fact of the matter is, there isn't a whole lot of Egyptian scholarship that corroborates what the Old Testament talks about, which could be because it didn't happen, hence what the atheists will argue, that this is all myth and nonsense, or that it did happen and the Egyptians were really embarrassed by it and probably weren't terribly keen to talk about that time that the greatest pharaoh that they had had, you know, gotten smacked down by some alien foreign god who just, like, embarrassed everybody and destroyed their city. Um, that, admittedly, would not be something they'd probably be terribly quick to report. Uh, so, who knows? Maybe it happened, maybe it did not happen. Again, I am just going to present the data and you can decide for yourselves. There's plenty of discussion about that out there most of which I don't think is terribly valid. Um, like, there's that whole argument that, like, oh, they didn't cross the Red Sea, they crossed the Reed Sea. And it's like, dude, if these people knew the geography way better than you did, like, you really think that Moses and company got confused about which sea they crossed? Like, oh, this totally mundane thing that happens all the time is represented in this book as though it was a miracle because they got the name wrong? No, I don't buy it. I find that extremely unlikely. Um, and generally, most of the arguments that circulate the internet tend to take that kind of, ha-ha, I found a loophole sort of explanation, and I'm not terribly impressed by that either. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Um, the traditional interpretation is that Moses wrote this book. The more critical, let's call it, uh, scholarship, as in, like, everything since Schleiermacher back in the 19th century, basically anyone who agrees with that sort of let's look at the Bible and tear it apart and demythologize it, um, they tend to place the dating of the Old Testament much more recently, like 500-ish BCE, um, i.e. well after the events that took place that are recorded here. Um, but even that is a little bit misleading. Uh, contemporary scholars who disagree with the traditional interpretation argue that the Pentateuch was probably written during the monarchic period, i.e. well after uh, Jason, or no, not Jason, that's Greek, um, well after David and Jonathan, um, well after, you know, the monarchy in Judea had been established, and in fact a lot of scholars point to, like, the magical discovery of the law in uh, First and Second Kings, like, when Josiah suddenly discovers, oh, oops, it looks like we've been ignoring the book for all this time. Um, the argument there is that the priests actually created it at that point, wrote it at that moment. Um, or at the very least, doctored it. Um, there's also a strain of non-traditional scholarship, critical scholarship, that argues that the Pentateuch was written not by one person, but by like four different people over a long period of time, like multiple people redacting and editing what was going on. 
I am not impressed by that argument either. Like, I've heard probably some of the best versions of that argument, and it's one of those things that, like, it was kind of a bad idea when it was initially presented, and everybody has poked holes in said bad idea and pointed out how said bad idea was bad. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of stuck anyway, and most people are operating under the assumption that it was multiple writers, even though I think that, like, the foundational argument has been pretty sufficiently debunked, which... Again, atheists gonna atheist in the same way as Christians gonna Christian. Um, so all that to say, I'm not terribly impressed with a lot of this scholarship. I do hold to the traditional view personally, but I don't think it's terribly important um, in this particular case. Whether this was an oral tradition passed down over many generations and finally recorded much later on in the, in the process, or if this was in fact written by Moses, documented for centuries, I really am not terribly dissuaded or frustrated by either interpretation of the way the text works. Um, for our purposes, it's important to note that this could be either. This could be a super ancient text, like the by far the oldest thing written that we were going to read in this class. It could be 3,500 years old. If Moses, in fact, wrote it, that's probably close to where it was. It could also just be 2,500 years old, in which case it's still ancient and it's still probably the oldest text that we're reading in this class, but it has a certain dogmatic and polemical aim to it that we have to sort of filter out as we're trying to understand what the actual stories were meant to tell us. Um, there's a bias here. But weirdly, in either case, when it comes to Genesis, it's still older. Um, like, even if you hold to the traditional view that Moses documented all of this, Moses writes from his own experience only with the start of the second book of the Pentateuch, the uh, Exodus. So Leviticus is definitely him recording what God told him, according to the traditional view. Deuteronomy is him literally narrating events, like, as they happen, because according to the tradition, he's, like, writing this right before he dies, and then, like, Joshua takes over for the last couple of passages. Um, but Genesis, Genesis is in the past, even if Moses is writing this. Genesis describes events that happened long before Moses was born, like hundreds of years before Moses was born. And the whole creation of the world, Adam and Eve thing, as much as there are a lot of proponents in Christendom of what is called the young earth theory, the idea that the earth is only like four or five thousand years old, um, that's still hundreds of years before Moses was alive and is pointing to what is apparently an oral tradition that predates Moses by a long shot. Um, or possibly God narrating the events directly to him. It's like Moses doesn't comment on that um, if, in fact, Moses is the writer. So no matter how we read this text, the same is going to be true, that it is foundational to the Jewish faith and therefore to the Christian faith as well. Um, it is way in the past and therefore operates as a sort of origin myth um, which I know it's kind of taboo, especially in Christian circles, to call this stuff myth, but insofar as I don't think myths are necessarily untrue, like I would definitely argue that like a lot of American history is based on myth, which has its one foot in truth and one foot in sort of like mythologizing, um, I suspect the same is true here. Uh, at the very least, we're going to treat it like a foundational story about personal values, about the way that God works, about the way the universe works, all of that. Which makes it valuable to us because it is also telling us how love works. That's the key here. 
for all of this hoopla and scholarship and discussion of the possible controversies at stake, the reason why this text is in this class is because it is this foundational text talking about love, talking about interpersonal relationships, and talking about God's relationship to all of these things. And obviously we have to start with the Garden of Eden. Like, there's no way around this. It is on the one hand possibly the most straightforwardly, like, just direct, like it isn't directly concerned with love in some sense, but it is so found fundamental to the way that we understand interpersonal relationships to work, especially between men and women, which is definitely going to inform, inform all love relationships going forward. Um, so there are a couple points that I definitely want to draw out here. Like, I don't want to get caught up in a retelling of the whole story. I often do in my classes, um, but we don't need to look at this as a myth. We need to look at this as what is it saying to us about love, about the cosmic order, about God, and how are Christians later and Jews later and philosophers later going to interpret this text to inform their perspectives. Um, so the first thing we need to talk about is the actual business of creation. Um, First off, and most obviously, God created the world. Like, first line of the entire Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Earth was, out, was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God, let there, there be land, and there is land. God says, you know, let's divide the waters on the earth from the waters above the earth, i.e. air from ocean, done. Let's make plants. We got plants. We got animals. We got humans. Great. Notice there's a lot here to unpack, obviously. First off, God is creating everything. Um, unlike many other cultures at the time, especially like the Greek tradition, as we'll talk about next week, there's one God, not a whole bunch of them. This is not some, like, primordial force of nature, like Hesiod's vision of chaos or even Eros. Um, but rather, this is a personal God. It is an intelligent God, a rational God, a God who, who behaves very carefully and deliberately. And this is not just, you know, oops, this God had sex with this God and now we have oceans. No, this is a deliberate act of rational creation in the same way that, like, we would create a machine. Um, God is not a sort of agent reproducing the universe as in so many other uh, ancient Near East traditions, God is a designer. Um, that's why the theory that sort of circulates around this text is called intelligent design. Um, and that's a significant distinction here. Like, again, we need to recognize, as much as we like already know the story of, of Judeo-Christianity and we are, have sort of like filtered this into our culture, and I imagine that most of the people listening to this already know the story, we need to very much drive home the fact that this is unique, novel, in some way. And it is significant to a lot of how things are going to go forward. Um, so God is a personal God. He is omnipotent. He creates the universe just by speaking it into being. He has authority over the entire universe. All of this is super important. The next thing that we definitely need to drive home is that this creation is good. Like... This is also fairly unusual in, you know, the ancient Near East text or mythic traditions. Um, like when Hesiod starts talking about, you know, God, like the various Olympian gods and, you know, the way the universe was made, it is a chaotic process. 
Like Gaia has sex with Uranus and it brings forth the Titans and the Titans fight the Olympian gods and the Olympian gods triumph and they remake the world and like it's all fought and blasted with their the craters of their battles and it's all you know angry because Gaia is herself a god like there's a whole lot of conflicting forces in place and the world that we have been sort of dropped into according to Hesiod is just this chaotic mad place that we have no control over and that nobody has any control over like the it is the force the forces between the figures that ultimately shape the world for Hesiod uh, much less any one of them being a designer in this sense. Um, but also, it is neutral. Like, it's just, it's the product of fighting. Hesiod doesn't put a normative value on fighting. Sometimes you need to fight. Sometimes people die. It happens. It's not bad. It's not good. It is the way of things. Chaos is where this universe came from, and you better believe that chaos is going to be a major component in its development. Um, by contrast, notice that in Genesis, it is repeated over and over and over. God makes this. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. God sees that all parts of this product or, or project are good. He gathers the waters that are, were to, gathered together. He called seas, and God saw that it was good. Um, God creates the animals, they are good. God creates the plants, they are good. And most notably, at the very end of this whole process, God sees everything that he has made, this is Genesis 1.31, and behold, it was very good. The universe was a positive thing. God has designed it to be good, with our goodness in mind. This is a good place. Not like in Hesiod, where it's chaotic and crazy and, you know, there's equal parts good and evil and Zeus is the mighty judge and the Furies and the whole mess that is, you know, the, the like, massive conglomeration of myths. No, we have one origin, we have one statement, we have one person weighing in on the subject. It is good. The universe was good. And importantly, I do stress, it was good. It won't be good for very long. Um, now, notice, too, that God creates human beings as sort of the pinnacle of this accomplishment. Notice what God instructs them to do. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on this earth. Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. He's basically saying, you know, you are the best part of my good creation. You are the finishing touch, the cherry on top of the sundae. Like, this is how my creation is perfected. Um, and we are also told later in Genesis 2 that God made man in the image of God. Um, we have this kinship with God. Um, we have this sort of notable, or rather this is in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, it's different. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God makes humans to be like God. And philosophers have been disagreeing about what that looks like for hundreds of years. Um, philosophers being philosophers, it stands to reason that many of them are being like, oh, he made human beings to be rational the way that he, God, is rational. And therefore we should practice our reason all the time. Hooray, philosophy. Let's make the philosophers kings. Um, that's not necessarily the only translation. Like, obviously, this could be referring to love. Um, when John in John 1 suggests that God is love, 
he could very well be opening up a theological interpretation that would suggest that the image of God in man is man's ability to love other man. Uh, sorry if I'm using the uh, universal masculine here. Again, the ESV does, and this has been a long-standing tradition. We will see many philosophers do this. It may not be politically correct, and it probably is something that I should be working on, but at the same time, I think it's probably a good idea to get kind of used to it for our purposes. Um, because again, like, man does stand as the default human in this case. And this is not, you know, an accident either. Like, look at the text. It is pretty obvious about it. Genesis 1 doesn't seem to have a whole lot of priority on the difference between male and female. Notice that it just puts them as equal. Male and female, he created them. Like, unless you want to put a lot of weight on the subject, on the fact that, like, he names male first, you know, you're not gonna, not gonna get a whole lot of inequality there. But notice that in Genesis 2, it is much more emphasized. Uh, God creates man, Adam, first. And then Adam does his job, he's naming all the critters, he's, you know, doing the work that God told him to do, and then God notices, oh, the one thing that is bad in the universe is that it is not good that the man should be alone. So I will make him a helpmeet, a helper fit for him. And he puts Adam to sleep, and he takes the rib out of him, and he, he turns the rib into Eve, the first ever woman, and then he sees that Eve is a fit help for Adam, he is... She is the proper helpmeet. Together with the two of them, man is not alone, all is well, and everything is great. That typically means that in Christian theology, women do get second fiddle. Um, it's not necessarily fair from this passage, but it will be more emphasized in, in uh, chapter 3 as well. So there's that to be concerned with. Um, but I do want to stress something very important here. Um, first off, notice that woman is not bad as she is created. Um, like, as we will see in, in chapter 3, you know, Eve is the one that eats the apple and everything falls apart, and therefore, you know, a lot of Christian theology has sort of argued that, oh, women are fickle and untrustworthy, and they're too curious for their own good, and they, they ruin everything. Like, human beings are screwed because of women. Um, and there's you know, some textual grounding for that, though it's not nearly as strong as people tend to make it out to be. At the very least, notice that here in book, in chapter two, um, Eve is not bad. There's no hint of badness. There's no fault here. If anything, God is excited that we found the proper help for human beings. Like, we had Adam. Adam was alone. That was bad. We made Eve. Eve is a good match. Now everything is good again. Notice too, like, there's been a pretty strong tradition in Christian theology and literature, I hesitate to say because it is fairly recent and I suspect Milton is all responsible for this. Um, there is definitely a fairly strong tradition that seems to sort of quietly insinuate that it was sex. Like, the whole fall of human beings, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was actually just an elaborate metaphor for human sexuality. And then as human beings started exploring one another sexually, God was like, Nope, nope, can't have this! Put the kibosh on it, you are now sinners, and get out of Eden, and life is ruined. Um, all because you experimented with each other. That's not at all what this text is saying. And in fact, quite the opposite. 
Um, you'll notice that after Adam gets really excited about Eve and is like, this is at last, the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Notice verse 24 and 25 in chapter 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice a couple of things here. This definitely has a sort of mythic moral to it. Like, this story definitely has the sort of, and that's why people get married. Yay! Like, this definitely reeks of typical mythology, like a story that explains some phenomenon in the universe, in this case, marriage. But notice that it's doing something else as well. This idea that they become one flesh is hardcore in Christian theology. Marriage as a bond between man and woman is not just sacred because God, you know, makes it sacred. Because they become one flesh, they are now inseparable in the eyes of God, as it is understood. Love changes people, like, on an ontological level. When you get married, you are different from the person you were before. You are now incomplete without the other person, insofar as you were complete before. Which is dubious because, again, remember, it is not good that the man should be alone. Um, therefore, your one fleshedness, your marriage, makes you better than you were, more complete than you were, and as a whole, it is not right to break it up. Divorces do happen in the Old Testament, but everybody is grumpy about it, most notably God. Um, and Jesus even, like, remarks on this in the New Testament, that, like, when the Pharisees and company come to him and say, hey, Moses let us divorce, and Jesus is like, guys, Moses let you divorce because you were whining about it so much all of the time. Please don't think that that's some kind of theological victory on your part. Um, divorce is an aberration here, is what it comes down to. The ideal situation, as we are seeing from this Edenic paradise, is that human beings pair, male and female, they are therefore perfected in their pairing, and they are now inseparable. And any effort to separate them is against God's original plan, against the sort of symbol and setup that is set up here in Genesis 2. But notice, too, Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This may seem pretty innocuous. Like, I think it's honestly pretty profound as written, the idea that, like, there was no shame there. Like, people were just walking around buck naked as though they were living in some sort of nudist community, and nobody had a problem with this. God didn't have a problem with this. They didn't have a problem with this. The animals didn't have a problem with this. Like, they just let it all hang out, and it was totally cool. Um, as written, that's kind of an interesting insight. Namely, that, you know... The fall that is about to come not only corrupts human interpersonal relationships, but the very way that we interact with our own sexuality. Um, like, we were comfortable with our junk once upon a time. We were not ashamed of it. We did not have the layers of Freudian repression layered around it. It was not some complicated part of our psyche. We were unashamed. We walked proudly with all of our junk hanging out, whatever junk we happened to be carrying. Um, it was fine and nobody had a problem with this. But also, it has largely been agreed by many scholars of this text that this is also kind of a not subtle Hebrew indication that they were having sex and not ashamed. Like, there's no indication here that sex is what breaks down the world, that there is something sinful or wrong about sex. On the contrary, 
man and wife become one flesh. They have sex in the Garden of Eden and everything is cool. This is a part of the created order. This is a part of the perfected universe. This is part of what God is talking about when he's saying the universe is very good. God is not an opponent of sex. Christianity and Judaism are both, at the end of the day, sex positive. What they are upset about is the way that sex has been broken, how it has been perverted. This is the original idea. This is the model that everyone is living up to. That model is now screwed up by the events that are about to happen in chapter 3. Now, I realize we are ignoring a whole lot of alternative sexual lifestyles here. We are definitely restraining sexuality to the institution of marriage and a heterosexual marriage at that. We will definitely not shirk the discussion about homosexuality and alternative lifestyles that is to come in this text. It's definitely not something I want to avoid, and I definitely included passages so we can talk about it. We're just not there yet, so put a pin in it. Um, the important thing that I want to emphasize here is that sex itself is neither dirty nor wrong as far as God sees it. It's going to be much later in the process that that sort of creeps into um, Jewish and Christian ideology and theology. Um, which, let's just jump forward to chapter 3, because we cannot talk about this paradise without also talking about the way that it all goes wrong. So, again, this story should be pretty familiar. I'm not going to try and recapitulate the whole thing. Obviously... Adam and Eve are having a good time. They're enjoying themselves. Eve takes this fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil at the suggestion of the serpent. She eats from it. Everything goes wrong. This is a problem. Now, there are a couple things to note here as well. First off, again, Christian theology is very apt to blame Eve on this one, and many Christian theologians have stressed, oh, it's woman's frailty. Woman is the weak link in the chain. But on the contrary, you can definitely read this same passage and have in mind the idea that this is not just Eve. Like, notice um, the notice verse 6 in chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice the emphasis there. Her husband who was with her. He was there. This was not a case of Eve, like, sitting at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the serpent's like, Mmm, Eve, do you want to eat the, the forbidden fruit? And Eve's like, Okay! And she takes the fruit, and she eats it, and she's like, Mmm, that was good! And she, like, runs three miles to find Adam, and she's like, Adam, look, try this fruit! And Adam's like, Where did this fruit come from? And Eve's like, Oh, nowhere! Just eat it! And he eats it, and Eve is like, Ha ha! It came from the tree of knowledge of good and evil! And Adam is like, No! Woman, you deceived me! No. That is not how this story goes. Like, Eve is sitting there, eating the fruit, and the most logical interpretation of this passage is Adam is literally standing there watching the whole thing going down, being like, Hmm, yeah, it does sound like a good idea. Like, he is complicit. No matter how you read this passage, even those theologians who argue that, like, Eve carried the fruit a mile and a half and gave it to Adam, and Adam had no idea what he was doing, it is still, at the end of the day, on Adam because, for better or worse, God put Adam in charge. Adam was a bad husband. He did not protect his wife. Either way, Adam is very culpable. This is not just a woman screwed up the world for everyone situation. That said... The punishment does change the dynamics rather significantly. 
Um, first off, notice that the first thing that they do upon eating from said tree is they like sew fig leaves together and make themselves clothes. So, oops, turns out modesty is going to be a thing from now on. I guess part of the brokenness of the world is going to be we are now ashamed of our sexual organs. Oopsie daisy. Um, so that sucks. Like, we have to wear clothes because of those darn kids in the Garden of Eden. Darn it. Why did they do that? But notice, too, that the other prohibition that God has made here, like back in, in chapter 2 when God is saying, don't eat of the knowledge, tree of knowledge of good and evil, he says, don't eat of it because you will die. And this is very much emphasized in the text. After they eat, and after everything goes badly, stuff starts dying. Not in this chapter, but literally the very next chapter, chapter 4, in addition to Cain and Abel, we get this whole genealogy where it's like, and Adam had this kid, and this kid grew up to be 900 years old, and then he died. And then the, his kid had this kid, and this kid also grew up to be 900 years old, and then he died. Like, death is intimately related to the fall here. But notice why it's wrong. Like, there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with the tree of knowledge of good and evil, although there are a lot of Christian theologians and a lot of other theologians and a lot of theologians and people reading this text who argue that this is like God trying to impose ignorance on people. No idea if that's true or not. No idea if that's some sort of subtext to be read in here. It is certainly significant that it's the tree of knowledge and good and, of e good and evil, or they wouldn't emphasize it so strongly. But at the very least... What seems to be the major problem here is not so much the fruit made you bad as you broke the rules. You disobeyed God. Remember, God gave man one job. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, go name some animals, but, by the way, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in that day you will surely die. Man brings this on himself. Both Adam and Eve screw up the plan because they broke the rule. They disobeyed God. This is going to be a pretty consistent theme of the Old Testament. You will notice that like 80% of what we read for today is repetition over and over again. Fear God, obey his commandments. He loves those who obey him and he hates those who disobey him. Um, the proper respect to show God is obedience. And the proper response from God is love and blessing. Um, however, if you disobey God, God will be patient with you. God will frequently forgive you. But if you go too far off base for too long, there will be punishment. There will be consequences. Um, in this case, it only took this much, whether fair or not fair. Um, and notice that we get punishments as a consequence. The serpent is now punished. It can no longer have legs, I guess. Like, maybe the serpent had legs? I don't know. Now it's on its belly and it eats dust and, like, women hate it and they fight each other, which may or may not be a reference to Jesus. We definitely don't have time for that. Uh, but notice especially the punishments on man and woman. To the woman he said, this is verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There's quite a bit to unpack there. Notice the punishments. She will now suffer when she bears forth a child. And she will be in pain when that happens. And notice that that is a direct comparison to Adam's own punishment. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. 
it seems to be pretty strongly suggesting here that man's proper work is you till the field, but it's going to suck and it's going to be hard now. You are going to have to labor at it. By contrast, the woman's proper job, at least as we are pre being presented in this text, is to bear forth children, and now that will also be painful, which is why we call it labor. Labor for Adam, he has to work hard. Labor for Eve, she has to suffer in childbirth. Um, but notice, too, the other side of the punishment. Your desire will be contrary to your husband. You and your husband are going to disagree. You're no longer going to be in concert all the time. But he shall rule over you. This is the linchpin to all of Christian theology that kind of sticks women in the second seat. And more often than any other passage, this is what I see when Christian scholars are arguing that, like, men should be considered superior to women, whether, you know, they should be allowed to preach or not allowed to preach, um, who should be the head of the household. Christians always will point to this to justify whatever inequality exists between men and women. Now notice, again, that does not change the fact that it is one flesh, that they are a help meet, that there is supposed to be some equity here. And the New Testament emphasizes this. Like the Old Testament and the New Testament stress, the man and the woman are a team. So most, a lot of theologians who argue that there should be inequality between the man and woman in some respect usually hedge that by stressing they are different jobs but not worse or better. The inequality is kind of a deception. Uh, men and women have different roles, not better and worse roles. And in fact, if anything, the New Testament seems to suggest that man's role to man's responsibility to woman is much greater than woman's responsibility to man. Not to say that they are unequal in some sense, but whenever Christians get on about like, you know, putting women in their place, so to speak, that is total nonsense and has no grounding in theology. Yes, the husband rules over the woman, that means that that is more responsibility, that is more work, that is a greater amount of stuff to do. Um, now admittedly, that can be considered pejorative or condescending, I'm not going to deny that in the slightest, I'm telling you like I see it here. This is the theology as I understand it, as I've run into it over and over and over again. Um, now. That's our big picture here, but notice the sort of theological consequences going on here. First off, we have God. God loves us. God cares for us. He wants the best for us. He creates a good world completely of his own impetus because nothing else can stand up to him. He is, as the Latins say, omnipotent, totally powerful, does whatever he wants and no one can gainsay it, as well as totally authoritative. He creates this good world. It is perfect in every way. He creates human beings to be the sort of cream of the crop, the greatest of all the creation, in the image of God himself. And then the human beings screw it up. They have their perfection for a little while, but then they royally screw it up by disobeying God, which is sin. Like, when Christians talk about sin, this is what they are talking about. And in fact, this gives rise to the entire theology of original sin. The idea that we come into a broken world. Like, we cannot help but be sinners. We follow the sin of Adam, we inherit it, either in some genetic capacity, or just because the world is a screwed up place because of what Adam and Eve have done. All of the suffering, all of the strife, all of the death, the fact that animals eat each other, all of this comes down to humans disobeying God. It is our fault. 
and we are collectively still at fault even two, three, four thousand years later, however you want to read this. Um, this is important because it means that love has this privileged place in the created order. If there is an insinuation here as far as like what love means in the new fallen world, it is that it is still a part of the old ways. It is a part of what God initially created, unsullied, unbroken, uncorrupted. Now that doesn't mean that love can't be corrupted, not by any extent of the imagination. There will be many cases where seduction is presented as this dangerous and destructive act. And in fact, God places some very strict boundaries in the Old Testament and the New Testament on how love is supposed to work because it, can, it is so powerful and therefore it can be a vehicle of tremendous sin. Um, but in its ideal form, the way that it is supposed to be practiced, again, between men and women within the marriage bond, is that it is a taste of Eden, a taste of heaven, of perfection. It is participating in the divine, perfect order that God made before it was ruined. Now, let's get into the, the messy stuff. Um, so the next passage that I include in the excerpt is chapter 19 of Genesis, which is the famous scene where Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And there's a lot to unpack here as well. Like Genesis is honestly filled with this stuff. We could just talk about Genesis for an entire semester and not cover everything that we needed to do. Um, so we are just like literally picking and choosing here on, on what is important. Um, this is considerably after the fall. Like, at this point, tons of stuff has happened. We had Noah and the ark and the flood that wiped out all human beings except for Noah. Um, that did not fix the world, by the way. It took, like, two hours after Noah landed on the earth to, like, plant a vineyard, get totally plastered, and for some weird thing to happen with one of his sons that may have been sexual. It's a giant mess. The Bible is full of these sorts of giant messes, and Genesis especially is just packed to the gills with weird relationships, like obvious perversions of the natural order. The emphasis throughout this book is that now that sin is in the world, it is thoroughly and completely corrupting every part of the created order. And what hope there is comes in the form of Abraham and the Abrahamic line which, again, we do not have time to talk about here. Suffice it to say that Abraham is possibly the single most important patriarch of the Old Testament, like, possibly even more important than Moses, um, if only because Abraham and Abrahamic faith unites Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, for that matter. Muslims point to Abraham as their spiritual father in the same way that Christians point to Abraham as their spiritual father. And Arabs draw their lineage to Abraham's line in the same way that Jews do, just through a different son. Um, Jews trace their lineage through Isaac to Jacob, or through Jacob to Isaac to Abraham, and argue that Isaac was the chosen son of Abraham. Muslims point to Ishmael, Abraham's other son, and say they are also inheritors of the blessing. And in fact, Isaac was not the chosen son, Ishmael was. We can talk about that maybe a little bit more on the day that we talk about Islam, but I doubt we're going to get to it. Suffice it to say that these religions are very closely related. And when we talk about Western culture in this class, we are including Islam. Uh, I realize that that is sort of 
weird to talk about and a weird point to make. Suffice it to say that when people talk about Western culture, they often mean radically different things. For our purposes, if when we distinguish Western culture at all from the rest of the world, which is kind of a stupid thing to do anyway, um, we are not going to leave Islam out in the cold. It is a foundational part of the West, in my opinion, and you'd kind of be silly not to include it that way. Um, but all that aside, our little side trip here is one of the foundational texts that have argued against homosexuality for hundreds, if in thousands of years, honestly. Um, here is our setup. Um, so God has recently just told Abraham, our major deal patriarch, that Sodom and Gomorrah have been terrible sinners. Um, like, they have disgusted God, God cannot stand it anymore, and he is going to blow them off the, off the face of the map. He is going to turn them both into a parking lot. And Abraham has been very leery about this because he knows that his cousin Lot is hanging out in Sodom these days. Um, Lot is a good man, or good-ish. Um, he's at least kin to Abraham. So he's like, God, will you spare Lot? And God's like, okay, I will spare Lot. Um, and then that's where we transition to this part of the story. Notice how the, this pans out. The angels show up in Sodom. Lot is hanging out in the gate of Sodom. Lot sees and recognizes the angels, takes them under his protection, brings them into his house, and the people of Sodom demand that Lot turn over the two strangers who are apparently super attractive, I guess. I mean, angels, sure, that kind of makes sense. Um, they want the angels to be sent out to them so they can have their way with them. Um, notice the line there. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Um, this is not a euphemism. In the original Hebrew, this would be pretty explicit. Like, bring out the strangers. We're going to fuck their brains out. Um, this is, like, literally what the text is saying. Um, Lot refuses. And in probably one of the most confusing moves in the history of Lot's career, he says, hey, don't worry about them. Here, take my daughters instead. And the men of the town are like, no, we want them, we're going to like bust in and take them, and it's this whole thing. And then magically God like strikes them with blindness, and then they can't see, and Lot and the company all escape, and Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. There's so much to unpack here. Um, first off, I don't know what the deal is with Lot and his daughters. Like that seem He seems to jump to that conclusion pretty quickly, and that's messed up, and... Then we get the passage where, like, Lot's daughters have sex with him in order to, like, have children because his wife got turned into a pillar of salt because, whoops, she looked back at... Yeah, it's a giant mess, and I'm not going to deny that it's a giant mess. I want to show, at least to some degree, that the Bible is very aware that sexuality is a giant mess, and there are all of these sort of screwed-up relationships at stake. But also notice that the Bible isn't terribly judgmental about it. Like, yes, Lot's daughters have sex with their father, and... Most readers of this would say, yeah, that's probably a bad thing and probably is just an indication of how screwed up the world is and how sinful the world is. But notice that the daughters don't, like, get punished or anything. There's no, you know, follow-up. There isn't in chapter 20 this passage where God's like, Lot, give me your daughters. I will punish them for sleeping with you. Like, no, this is, this is actually complicated. So let's start unpacking the complications here. Um, first off, obviously, cultures, since this has been, have been written, typically interpret this story to mean, here are these angels, they come into the town, and we see all of the people of Sodom, these Sodomites, c 
come and demand to have sex with the angels, i.e. perform an act of sodomy on them. Um, the words are not an accident. Like, because of the interpretation, the term for anal penetration was sodomy. Um, and that's largely because the typical interpretation of this passage is that the crime of Sodom was the fact that they wanted to have sex with these men, that they wanted to perform a homosexual act of sexuality. In reality, this text is much less clear about that. The sin of Sodom doesn't seem to be just straightforward sexuality. And in fact, in Hebrew culture, I suspect what would have jumped out to the original readers has nothing to do with the act of sexuality. It has much more to do with the fact that the men are attempting to rape these two people. Not just in the sense that this is a sexual crime, but in the sense that these are strangers. Notice the way that Lot reacts to them. Lot is sitting in the gate of Sodom. He is sitting at the entrance to the city. Which should give us pause. Why is Lot here? Why is he hanging out at the entrance? And we see why. He is the first person to greet these newcomers into the town. And he immediately takes them in under his protection. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And notice their response. No, we will spend the night in the town square. Lot is trying to protect them. Notice, if they had spent the night in the town square, this wouldn't even be a problem. Like, the interactions of the city with the angels would have been very direct, very immediate. The angels would show up, stay the night in the town square, a bunch of people would come and try and rape them, and the angels would blow them to smithereens, no problem. No interference with Lot, nothing. But notice, too, that this might very well be a test. Lot insists... He presses them strongly, so they turn aside into Lot's house. He takes them under his protection. The sin of Sodom is not rape in the sense of a sexual crime. It is rape in the sense of a violation of guest protection. In the ancient Near East, the idea of guest protection is huge, like immense. And you will see it all over the Old Testament. This is a dangerous time. People live in this dangerous wilderness where there are bandits and evils afoot all of the time, all over the place. There is frequently not water or food to be found. So when you are a traveler, as needs to happen in all sorts of life situations, because you need pasture land in order to graze your flocks, and therefore there's a lot of space between you and your relatives as you try and find more space for your animals, you spend a lot of time wandering, and you have to be able to trust each other. This is a fundamental law, and it still holds in a lot of Arabic cultures, especially out in the, in the Near East today, um, like in Saudi Arabia, in, you know, in Egypt. These are important traditions. Um, they've stayed with the culture. And the Hebrews would have recognized that the problem here is not that these men want to have homosexual gay sex, the problem is that they are not respecting these men. They're probably going to rape and kill them. The strangers are endangered. They are not respected. And notice that Lot, by contrast, if he is being tested here, he succeeds with flying colors. Like, as weird as it is that he immediately offers his daughters, notice how important it is to Lot that he is protecting the guests, protecting the strangers. 
He is clearly sitting at the gate so he can protect strangers from being accosted, so he can welcome them into his house. He is going out of his way to make sure that people are not violated when they come to the city. He is the one good man in this entire city. And yes, he gives his daughters away. Yes, that's messed up according to a contemporary culture, but that's because our contemporary culture doesn't respect guest pr protection in the same way as this one did. From this culture's perspective, this might have been a little much, but it was in the right direction. Lot had the right idea in mind. His heart was in the right place. And if anything, this just emphasizes how strongly Lot wants to protect these men, how seriously Lot takes guest privilege. Now that said, that does not mean that, you know, the entire history of Christians persecuting gay people and sodomites is some kind of, like, massive confusion on the part of, you know, biblical interpretation. Obviously, it's more complicated than that. The more obvious and the more sort of direct prohibition against homosexuality comes in the next passage that I've included, in Leviticus 18. Um, it is really pretty straightforward. Uh, Leviticus 18.20 says, You shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make her yourself unclean with her. You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And you shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. This is pretty straightforward, and there is no room for sort of creative interpretation here. Um, homosexuality is pretty obviously included on the list of sexual sins here, right next to bestiality and incest and a whole bunch of other weird, crazy sex stuff that could be going on, um, all of which God is totally dead set against. Um, what's more, we get that emphasis, it is an abomination. The insinuation here is that it is against nature in some way, which is important because remember, God made nature. He made it and it was good and therefore he does not like things that go against it as a rule. Um, so there really isn't a very good way of sort of interpreting this text to be open to homosexual relationships. Um, but that said, once again, it is a bit more complicated. Now, the way that this discussion usually takes place on the internet, because again, this is like the first line of defense that Christians bring up anytime that the conversation about homosexuality takes place. Like anytime some Christian wants to stir up trouble or is defending themselves against the accusations that they're closed-minded and that they're not reading the Bible right, this is the passage that they will trot out. Um, and they are at least to some degree right to trot it out. It is pretty straightforwardly a prohibition against homosexuality. It admittedly does not get overturned in the New Testament, and if anything, it is reinforced, but that's later in the class we'll talk about that. The reaction, typically, like the smart-ass atheist response, or the sort of you know, sneaky liberal response follows in the vein of the West Wing episode where President What's-His-Face stands up and he's like, Oh, so you're trusting Leviticus, huh? Well, what should I do about burning my wife for wearing clothes made of different cloths? What should I do about selling my daughter into slavery? And he's like, ha 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 ha, what antiquated laws? Clearly Christianity has done away with so much of the old law. And that's true. Many of the prohibitions in, Levit in Leviticus do get 
changed. I say very, very carefully because this is a very, very tricky area of theological discussion, but it is not that simple. Um, notice that most of the prohibitions that are hanging out right next to these, this prohibition against homosexuality are things that Christians are not arguing against. Like, there's a lot of incest happening in the passage beforehand, and there is a lot of bestiality happening in the passage afterward. There's a lot of really wonky stuff. Now, some of it is kind of antiquated. Like, we have this whole passage about not lying with a woman while she's menstruating. That's one of the many uncleanness prescriptions that's going on here. Just, like... Uh, there's so much that we could potentially be taking apart. Suffice it to say that there's a lot of really big deal stuff hanging out in this passage, and then there's also this passage, and then there's also a couple of passages that do seem like they've been changed around a little bit, because the cleanliness laws do seem to be one of the things that Jesus is pretty quick to overturn, insofar as things are being overturned. Um, so... I don't think that the ha-ha-ha Levitical law has been completely rejected is a very competent argument against Christians making this point. Um, that reductio ad absurdum is not great um, and represents a sort of lack of knowledge about the text. So I highly recommend that you don't use that the next time that some Christian gets high and mighty about homosexuality. There are arguments to be made, for sure. Uh, within Christianity and in response to Christians. What I would recommend, if you are in fact going to try and put a Christian in their place, is to tell them that sinners will be sinners. Um, that's a really important idea in the New Testament especially. Like, Paul very much stresses that, you know, you cannot expect unbelievers to behave like believers, and therefore it is not the Christian's business to make legislation for people who are not Christians. Govern your church, absolutely police your own membership and leave us the heck alone that's probably the best answer that you can give to a christian in you know a pretty quick and dirty you know online conversation or something um and feel free to quote scripture there's plenty of scripture to back it up now christians actually have a long conversation about you know whether or not the the prescriptions of the bible should actually inform one's political decisions and you may find yourself in a very tricky conversation so it might be in the best interest to just ignore them because nobody gets their minds changed on social media anyway but please do not go with the smart ass approach and be like hmm, leviticus do you believe all the things that are written in leviticus like christians have good answers for that they have much less good answers when it comes down to how does government work and how does my faith interact with my citizenry. Um, and you can expose that pretty quickly, too. Um, if you, in fact, want to make a Christian look silly, that's probably the best route to it. But if your Christian is prepared, you might get more than you bargained for. Suffice it to say, there are no easy answers here. And that's one of the things I want to stress. Like, as much as the internet has trained us to sort of just quip each other to death, the, Christ, the whole business of being a true and rigorous and responsible Christian is a complicated one. It has a lot to do with sort of reading this text carefully and understanding it in especially careful ways, trying to understand the context behind passages like this one, and recognizing when some things are changing and when some things are not. Recognizing that the text as interpreted is different from the text as it, is, as it stands, and that what God wants from us may not necessarily be diff may not necessarily be the same thing as what our church tells us to do um, there's a lot of history a lot of tradition a lot of complication bound up in it 
And even among group, groups of different Christians, you will have different people coming to different answers about how those things should be navigated around. The fact of the matter is, if you tell a Christian that they are intolerant for disregarding homosexuality or considering it a sin, that's kind of what their Bible tells them, and they think their Bible is much more authoritative than you. So as a result, that's not necessarily a productive line of conversation. Um, they will basically just conclude, oh, you are a sinner, and therefore I can disregard you. Um, and that's not a great place to be in. But that's also kind of the easy way out, and not a great behavior on the part of Christians either. Uh, but let's not get too caught up in this. we got to keep moving. Um, the next thing I definitely wanted to stress in Leviticus 19 is this passage, which you could definitely blink and miss. Um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the context here. We have a bunch more rules and restrictions, but these rules have a very different character than the ones in Leviticus 18, where there is a definite sort of sexual through line and sexual, um, like, perversion kind of theme going on in most of Leviticus 18. Leviticus 19 is very much about even-handedness, about obedience, and about treating each other well. Um, so when you reap the harvest of the land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after the harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. And notice the refrain here, I am the Lord your God, i.e. be nice to people. Do not treat the poor like crap. You will be nice to beggars. You will specifically leave parts of your field unharvested so people can walk along your field, take corn or grain or whatever from it, and eat it. Like, that is a part of being a good practicing Jew, according to the Mosaic Law. It is very rarely actually obeyed, like there's tons of examples throughout the rest of the text of the Jews falling away from this sort of behavior, but that's kind of a constant theme anyway. The, this is not like a disparaging remark against the Jews, but the way that the Israelites are presented throughout the Old Testament is they constantly, constantly fall away from God, fail to obey his commandments. And as we discussed, the way you love God, the way that you respect God, and the way that you express your love and respect for God is through obedience. So when you don't pay attention to these commandments, when you treat each other like crap, that's a violation not just of your relationship to another person, but your relationship with God. Notice that this is emphasized over and over. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. You shall follow justice. You shall go around as, do not go around as a slanderer. I am the Lord. And notice this last passage, verse 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now this is frequently picked out as the most important commandment of the bunch. 
Like when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He responds, not with one of the Ten Commandments, but rather with Deuteronomy 6. The Lord your God is one God. You will worship him with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And then he says, the second one is much like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is not something that Jesus is making up on the spot. Like he is certainly offer, lending his authority to it, but the scribes have figured this one out a long time ago. They know that the two primary rules in the entire list, like even more than the Ten Commandments, are one, you love the Lord with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Like it says in Deuteronomy 6. And then, as a second one, you love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you do that, if you follow that law, just about all the other stuff will happen automatically. Treating most of the rules that are laid down here, the sexual restrictions, the Ten Commandments, like do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not murder, like as Paul points out, as Jesus points out, and as the Jewish scribes point out, if you love your neighbor as yourself, all, that, all the rest will come with it. Like obviously you're not going to murder someone who you love as yourself. And you are not going to steal from someone who you love as yourself. And you are not going to lie about someone in court when you love that person as yourself. And you are not going to commit adultery against that person if you love them as yourself. That's the key here. That's why I made sure to incorporate that passage. And notice, too, that the reasoning that Jesus points out in Matthew is the same as well. You will love your neighbor as yourself because you love God. The second rule follows from the first. There is a clear logical connection here. Now, for our purposes, it's very significant to note that this is love we're talking about. And notice that it's love in both of these commandments. You will love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength. You will love your neighbor as yourself. This is the sort of fundamental, most basic, most primordial love rule that we are going to see in this class. And I cannot drive home hard enough how significant it is to the history of Western philosophy and the history of Western culture. This is the foundation. This is bedrock. This is our first and perhaps most important understanding of what love is. Now, the Hebrew word is slightly different from the word that we're kicking around in English. I'm not going to deny that in the slightest bit. And in fact, the idea of love is kind of connected to this idea of respect, reverence, possibly even holiness. Um, it, it has a connection to mercy in some capacities. It's complicated. It always is. But notice that we can pick this up from the context, from the fact from the way that it is used in the text itself as we can see it here. Um, again, it says specifically as part of the greatest commandment that you will fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all of his statutes and commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This absolutely echoes, this is Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. This is what's known as the Shema, the greatest prayer in Jewish traditions. Notice how it very much parallels with what's being said in the Ten Commandments, that you will, you will obey the Lord, you will not have any gods before the Lord your God, you will not make carven images, you will not worship idols, all of that is rejected. Like, in the Ten Commandments, the first five, arguably six of them, have to do with honoring God first and foremost. And it is connected explicitly to God. You're going to obey the Lord. You will have no other gods before him. 
You will have no idols. You will not take the Lord's name in vain. You will observe the Sabbath because God rested on the seventh day and it is therefore holy and you respect him by doing that. You honor your mother and father as God commanded you. And even down to you covet, you will not covet your neighbor's wife. There is definitely a clear connection to what one has been given by God himself. Ten, five out of ten commandments, minimum, probably six, all have to do with respecting God. This is super important to the Jewish law. And your love of God and God's love for you is primary. Of all of your relationships, in all of your life, this relationship is most important. This is most significant for understanding how the Hebrew world understands love. This is love in its purest form as far as the Old Testament Hebrews, as far as contemporary Jews, are concerned. Loving God by obeying him, and in return, he loves you with this unconditional forgiving love that also will, in fact, punish you if you do, in fact, disobey him. Now, I say unconditional, and then I name a condition. And there, that's kind of intentional on my part. That's usually the way that it is framed. The other passage that I did, in fact, stress from Deuteronomy, this bit about, you know, it is not because of righteousness that God picked you, God is stressing here, Moses is stressing here, using the words that God has inspired in him, there's a whole conversation we had there as well that we really can't get into, he is absolutely stressing, you are not special, you are not better than other people, you are not even more faithful than other people, God just picked you, largely because of Abraham. That's kind of where the foundation of this all boils down to. Abraham had faith in God, and it is said in Genesis that God counted it to him for righteousness. Faith, not righteousness, recommended Abraham to God. Abraham screws things up. Like, he does not follow the plan perfectly, and bad things will happen as a consequence. But God is quick to notice, he believes God, and as a consequence, that faith counts as righteousness, and that faith is going to be the deciding factor in all of God's relationships with human beings. So, when we get this passage where God is calling Israel out, hey, remember that time that Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments specifically from me, God, and you could not wait long enough and made yourself a golden calf idol and then fell down and worshipped before it? Yeah, I remember that. That was a really jerk thing to do. And I should have killed you on the spot, but I didn't. Because I love you. Because I forgave you. Because Moses intervened on your behalf. We had a conversation. He appealed to my forgiving side. And he said, you say you are a forgiving God, so forgive us. And as a forgiving God, I did. That's God's relationship to human beings. And there are multiple times, like they're all listed here. Remember that time that these sons of Korah rebelled? Yeah, I threw them all into a giant pit and I almost took the rest of you with them, but I didn't because I have forgiven you, because I love you. Remember that other time? Yeah, well, I forgave you because that's who God is. That love is what our own love is modeled on. And that's part of the connection here. You are to love your neighbor because you are loved by God. And this, as much as it is a Christian idea, and I am absolutely definitely imposing some Christian theology on this passage, the scribes were picking up on this too. This is not alien to Jewish theology. It is very much emphasized through these passages, 
God loves you for reasons that have nothing to do with how good you are. It is purely a historical accident or because of God's goodness and his promises to Abraham that you get to enjoy the blessing as well, not because of your righteousness. And therefore, the correct response to this is faith. That was Abraham's, that was what saved Abraham, that is what will save you. How do you express your faith? Well, first and foremost, by being nice to each other, by loving one another, by showing the same generosity and mercy that God showed you to your neighbor, to your friends, to the people close by to you, and also by obeying all of the commandments that God has made you. Here is the whole list, like it's a book and a half of the, of the Pentateuch and then some. This is the fundamental relationship. This is what love looks like in the Jewish community, in the Old Testament. This is what it's supposed to be. And notice the characteristics here. It is, to some degree, unconditional, but it does have conditions attached to it. Notice, though, that God still loves people when he punishes them. This is another important theological element in the whole sort of perspective of Old Testament theology. It is especially sort of potent in things like Proverbs and stuff. God specifically says, you know, you wouldn't, treat, you wouldn't forgive your son with no punishment if he did something truly bad and dangerous. Not because, you know, you don't, you don't love your son, but because you do love your son. You protect your son by disciplining him when he misbehaves. God compares himself frequently in the Old Testament to Israel's father. He tells them, address me as your father in heaven, in some cases. The metaphors here are not subtle. God is the father of these people. God is the Lord of these people. Yes, he is benevolent. He is generous. He gives freely from his goodness and mercy. He forgives them many times when they do things wrong. But if you forgive people too much, they're just going to walk all over you and ultimately make themselves miserable. And God knows that. So there are limits. There are boundaries. You transgress too far and God will punish you. Not because he doesn't love you, but because he needs to teach you a lesson. Because he needs to separate you from people who are corrupting you. And this too is a huge part of this text that I don't want to gloss over. It is very tricky, God's relationship to people outside of Judaism at this point. And God emphasizes here that when you go into the promised land that God has promised to Abraham and therefore that you get to inherit, you're going to kill everybody. Everybody. All the Canaanites have to die. You will kill every man, woman, and child. There will be genocide. And God is commanding said genocide. And a lot of people look at that and they're like, What? God? Loving, forgiving God? Why would he do that? He must be a monster. Therefore, we shouldn't believe him. Some of that seems to be a fairly rational response. Certainly, I have trouble understanding why God would warrant genocide in this situation. Like, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But I also do read God's argument in this case. Specifically, he can't trust the Israelites alone. He makes this case multiple times. Like, he doesn't stress it in the passage that we picked, so I am pulling from some of the rest of Deuteronomy here. Like, I think literally the next chapter after 9 is saying some of this very explicitly. Um, but he is very much stressing, you know, all I have to do is turn my back on you for one minute and you start worshiping other gods. 
if you hang out with people from other faiths, you will worship their gods. You inevitably do. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. Like, read the book of Numbers sometimes. You will see the Israelites falling again and again and again. Read Judges, the same thing. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, over and over and over again. For years and years, even centuries, it's just repeatedly falling away. God is right when he says that if you hang out with the wrong crowd, you will become bad people and you will fall away from me. In order to protect God's relationship with Israel, God commands that Israel kill all the competitors. It's violence, and it's rough, and it's awful, and it seems very backwards and very unloving from a supposedly loving God, but this is the plan, and also importantly in the Old Testament is the idea that you do not question God. This is perhaps where we're going to get into our darkest territory, um, but in the, in the book of Job especially, which could very well be the oldest book of the Bible, like it is, many scholars on both the traditional and the atheistic side have argued that Job could theoretically predate the Pentateuch. It is contended, like Job is this very great dude, he is absolutely faithful to God, like God is even pointing him out, he's bragging about him to some demon who randomly shows up in heaven one day, and he's like, hey demon, have you seen my servant Job? He's awesome, he obeys me all the time, and the demon's like, give me five minutes with his family, and I'll totally turn him against you, and God's like, go for it, Psh, totally, and the demon, like, kills all of his family, and destroys his household, and, like, destroys all of his wealth and possessions, and Job doesn't give up, Job continues to believe in God, and God's like, see, told you, Job's awesome, and the demon's like, well, that's because you wouldn't let me touch Job, like, let me mess with him a little bit, let's make, let's make him sick, or, you know, give him some awful boils or something, and God's like, fine, go for it, do it, he's too awesome for you, a demon goes up, messes up Job's life, and Job is sitting on a dung heap, scratching at his boils with a pot shard, and he still believes in God. And at the end of a long discussion where a bunch of friends show up and tell him, you know, dude, what did you do to piss off God so much? And Job's like, I didn't do anything. I was doing the, the best I could this whole time. Like, I never sinned. I never did anything wrong. And they're like, dude, you must have sinned. You really pissed off God. Finally, God shows up and he's like, okay, I don't have an answer for you. And this is like the biggest anticlimax in the entire Bible. Like, we finally have this question, why did God let this horrible thing happen to Job? And God's answer is, shut up and don't ask questions. I am God. Can you pull out Leviathan with a hook? Can you make the world in seven days? Can you order the winds to come and to go? Like, I am God. Don't question me. I do what I want. I am the boss around here. I am the final authority. What I say goes. Who are you to speculate on what I do and why I do it? God will frequently justify himself to the Israelites, but they are supposed to obey him regardless. That's the key here. And we, looking at these laws in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we are absolutely welcome to sort of say, oh, well, this makes a lot of sense. You know, God loves people, and therefore he is commanding people to love one another, and this is a way of honoring and respecting God because God loves us so much. But at the same time, when we are asking questions like, why does he prohibit homosexuality, the correct answer for just about any Christian is because he said so. And that's all there is to it. We can't second-guess this one, which is why, as much as I am sympathetic to efforts to sort of square the queer theory and, like, movements to, to liberate, you know, the queer community with my faith, 
you know, as much as I am open to Christians trying to figure out how we can sort of fit this, these two sort of distinct priorities, this love for my brothers in the queer community, but also my love for God, on the other hand, I am absolutely sympathetic to that, but I also think that at the end of the day, there's not a lot that the Bible can be sort of forced into saying. At the end of the day, this is a we just have to trust God situation from the Christian's perspective. We have to trust that God knows what he's doing, that there is a reason behind this. It is trust that is also such a huge part of this loving relationship. Um, and that's tricky. Like, I'm not going to deny that that's tricky. This is something I wrestle with. I don't have an answer. I have some good solutions. I have some good ways of coping with this and we will talk about them more when we get into the discussion of Christianity um, I do definitely think that most Christians really get upset about sexual sin in a way that is not warranted according to the Bible especially when there's all sorts of greed based sin going on around us all the time that apparently nobody has a problem with um, notice again that that's kind of a much bigger deal in a lot of these passages like as much as we do see in fact that whole section about sexual sin and bestiality and homosexuality and so on and so forth there's also even more in leviticus about even-handedness and justice like we saw in leviticus 19 and yet somehow that seems to just kind of get ignored when christians are getting uppity on the internet for some reason and that makes me super grumpy and i feel fairly confident that i am in the right on this one um because again there's a lot of bible there uh supporting that perspective so again i know that we did not manage to cover everything that we needed to talk about here and probably did not cover sufficiently a lot of the things the key points to take away here are again the foundation of love as it is discussed in the old testament and as it will ultimately be discussed in christianity is that first and foremost your primary love relationship is with god you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and in return, he loves you unconditionally with the provision that you are supposed to obey him as a part of your love, as a part of your faith, as a part of your responsibility and your recognition that he is your creator and therefore, you know, your master and God. Um, one of the major ways that you express this love for God is by loving one another, by being kind to one another, by being even-handed with one another, by not taking advantage of one another. Um, and that does, in fact, include certain prohibitions on sexuality, some of which may be explained, some of which may not be explained. At the end of the day, you have to take them all because you have to love and trust God. That is the central love philosophy here. And by doing this, by participating in this love relationship with God and with your neighbors, you do get a glimpse or a taste of that paradise that has been taken away because of the fall of human beings, because of the entrance of sin into the world. That's why we're doing this. And the entire rest of the Old Testament is largely devoted to successes and failures in doing this. Various prophets talking about how we should interpret this in a given situation, tracking the history of all of the successes and failures, all the kings who were good and all the kings who were bad, all the times that people followed God and were rewarded, and all the times that, that, that people fell away from God and were punished. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Now in the last five minutes, which it's kind of a bummer that we only have five minutes to talk about it, but you know the rest of it is so very important that you know I feel fairly justified in the decision. I do want to talk a little bit about David and Jonathan's friendship. Um, what friendship looks like in the Old Testament. 
first off, if it isn't obvious, there are a lot of different cultural assumptions here that just do not hold in our relationships today. You'll notice that there were a couple of passages throughout in the discussion of like romantic relationships and sexual relationships that apparently polygamy is on the table here. Like it was for the patriarchs, and Leviticus seems to make a couple of uh, like accommodations for polygamists. Like there's definitely that passage about, you know, don't marry your wife and also your wife's sister at the same time so they'll be like jealous of each other. Like that should have opened your eyes or made you ask a couple of questions. It seems to suggest that it's okay to have multiple wives so long as, you know, you're not a jerk about it. Um, so polygamy is apparently on the table here. Notice that a lot of the romantic relationships and a lot of the assumptions about romantic relationships are actually based on economics rather than sexual attraction. Um, this was normal in the ancient world, and we'll talk about that more next week when we talk about the Greeks because that is something they share in common with the, with the Old Testament that we have enough to talk about with God. Um, likewise, notice that David and Jonathan's friendship is very much rooted in its own time and is expressed in its own ways. David and Jonathan's friendship is significant not just because it works. Like, notice that it even says, you know, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Notice the wording here. Like, where we saw one flesh in Genesis 2, now we have one soul, or his own soul, in 1 Samuel. The kinship that is being demonstrated here between Jonathan and David is comparable to a married couple. Now, the nuances of meaning between the flesh and soul, I am not equipped to talk about at this point, at this juncture. Um, suffice it to say that this is supposed to be a parallel relationship, an intimate relationship, though possibly one that is less carnal and intentionally less carnal. Friendship is of the soul, where erotic love is of the body, of the flesh. That certainly seems to be one of the insinuations here. Notice, too, that this has a lot to do with political life. David and Jonathan's friendship stands in this whole context of Saul, the old king, being deposed by God and sort of shuffled off because of some bad things that he did, and David being sort of brought up in his place. And Jonathan recognizing, apparently, either David's worth on his own level or recognizing God's interactions here, attaches himself to his friend, Jonathan, against his own father. And this is significant, too. Father-son relationships are incredibly powerful and incredibly important in the Old Testament. You owe everything you have to your father. And again, we'll talk about this more next week because, again, this is fairly similar to the way that the Greeks behave. Um, suffice it to say that Jonathan allying himself with David rather than with his father Saul is a huge movement here. This is not just major political drama. This is like major human drama on a very basic level. What is being presented here is that Jonathan and David's friendship is righteous. And if Jonathan had instead stayed with his father, it would have been wrong. Not because the familial relationship is somehow subordinate to the friendly relationship, but because God has favored David and Jonathan recognizes that. Again, all of these relationships the friendly relationships, the erotic relationships, all of these relationships that we could call love have to be filtered through the God-human perspective. That is the basic lens here. Jonathan loves David because God loves David, and Jonathan loves God. 
And Jonathan sees in David more godliness than he sees in his own father, Saul. Now, that's why ultimately when Saul tries to kill David, Jonathan starts warning David and Jonathan protects David and Saul considers this a betrayal and there's all this anger and stuff. Jonathan has to pick a side. This drama is palpable. It is real. It is meant to be emphasized here. And this is also the fundamental friendly relationship of the Old Testament. Like, this is the one that everyone brings up. This and the story of Ruth as a story of, like, women friendships, as well as sort of bringing up that whole complex, like, economic situation that we see elsewhere in here. Um, these are all important friendly relationships. These are, importantly, the basis of good friendships as far as the Old Testament is concerned. You have a close relationship to a person who is like yourself, either because of kinship bonds or because of something outside of it, be it political, allegiance, whatever. But it is always, always, always mediated by God's relationship and your relationship to God. So as much as this is a friendship between David and Jonathan, and as much as this takes the form of a political sort of alliance and allegiance, something that we're going to see many, many times in the readings to come in Greece and Rome, it is also very much a God thing. And that relationship needs to be understood in that light. All right, we've already gone over time. These are only supposed to be an hour and 40 minutes, and somehow I can't even make that deadline anymore. Remember when I used to record, like, hour and 15-minute lectures, and my voice didn't just die in the process? That was nice. Oh, well. We have fallen from Eden now, and this is the dark time. Um, at any rate, for next week, we're going to break into our Greeks by reading the first half of the symposium. Read everything from the beginning up until the end of Agathon's speech, and we will talk about it more once you get here. Um, in the meantime, enjoy whatever time you have between these lectures. I am, in fact, enjoying making them as much as I may complain about them. I hope that this does help you sort of understand the complexity of what's going on here in the Old Testament. If you do have more questions, don't hesitate to ask. I'm always eager to talk about this stuff, again, because of my hidden Christian agenda and my attempt to convert you all into Christians. Um, as a consequence, if you are curious for your own purposes, by all means, pick my brain. I promise to behave myself and not, like, try and browbeat you. Um, mostly, I want to dispel a lot of the bad information that is circulating out uh, around the internet. Like, again, there are so many people with so many agendas out there. It's very difficult to navigate between everything that's going on. Let me help you do that, if it's something that you want to do. Um, thank you again for listening, and we'll talk again soon.